Hi there, I'm Tom Schultz, host of Voices of Montana, an issue-oriented newsmaker radio program heard weekdays on 18 radio stations with 27 signals all across the Treasure State. Thanks for clicking on the podcast. Please subscribe and we'll do our best to keep you connected. We're also on Facebook at Voices of Montana and on the Internet at VoicesOfMontana.com, where I'd love to hear from you. Contact me at Tom at VoicesOfMontana.com. We get a look at Medicaid expansion in Montana. A lot of questions to kind of roll through. Ed Buttry is going to join us, our representative out of House District 21. We'll have to look at the history of Medicaid expansion in Montana. We'll have to look at what the effect of COVID has done. We'll have to... Find out the cost of these things and an awful lot to to get through. This discussion with Medicaid, we chatted yesterday. It goes back a ways to, what was it, 2016 when Montana first addressed Medicaid expansion. And, of course, we've had to reauthorize it. Let's talk a bit about that history, if you would. Sure. Well, we actually started talking about it in my first legislative session, which was way back in 2011. And this was due to the feds passing the uh, uh, ACA, the Affordable Care Act, in 2010. And then the court decision is to uh, allowing states to decide whether they were going to individually decide whether to implement Medicaid expansion or not. So, you know, I'm coming in the legislature in 2011. I'm a a business guy, a small business owner with absolutely no health care experience. And, you know, it's in looking at this issue, it's not something that a legislator would would probably choose to get into. It's, it's not a lot of fun, but right. um, you know, a lot of people ask me. One of the first things they ask is, "Why did I get involved in this discussion?" And it's pretty simple. You know, it's all from a business perspective. Um, at that time, I was growing in electric electronics and other uh, few types of businesses, and it was very obvious that the biggest issue that I was having was in finding and keeping a a very dependable workforce. Uh, These businesses were in manufacturing and other service industries, and most of my need was for entry-level workers. Um, And I was having some success in finding management-type staff, but in finding the workers that were actually going to be doing the work and, and creating the profits and revenues for the company, I was having a real struggle. And in fact, for every Um, three entry-level type staff that I was hiring, if I was lucky, I was able to retain one um, that could become a very effective and long-term employee. And as I started to look at why I was hiring so many people and retaining so few, um, I was doing exit interviews. I was talking to people um, that would come in or leave the business. And I was finding out that there was a lot of issue with illness, especially, and some, some of those illnesses were mental, some were physical, uh, some folks had addiction, addiction issues, and these things were keeping them from being, uh, from the ability to become a reliable and very successful employee. And none of these folks that I was talking to had preventative care services, treatment, counseling, or any sort of job training that would prepare them for the workforce. And what really became obvious to me was that if a worker is unhealthy, either physically or mentally, or has addiction issues, there, there was no way that they were going to be successful in the workforce. They weren't going to be able to help my business, and they couldn't really even take care of themselves and their families. And this troubled me, and, and in looking at it, I thought, well, you know, as much as we hate government getting involved in things, yeah. this may be an example where government actually needs to step in and help. And, and this is um, what I, I, I like, and I kind of want to stop there because I, I think that's kind of at, at the crux of it in a lot of ways. Uh, we want our taxpayer funding to go to uh, great general 
purposes, so to speak. Is this one of them? Uh, this is discussion of what government should and should not pay for, um, I think it comes at the heart of this or at, at, at some foundation level of this, but maybe at the heart of it is investing at this point saves money down the road too. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a really big ideological issue. It's one of the yeah. largest and, and none of us want healthcare involved in anything more than absolutely necessary, uh, especially involved in things like healthcare. But our healthcare system, which is really a broken system, it's a very expensive system, and it's so complex and expensive that without government help, it's just simply a fact that a large portion of our citizens simply can't, uh, can't pr- afford it or play in the healthcare system. But one of the things that we also have to realize is that if an uninsured person needs healthcare services, they're going to get it. But they're going to get it at the wrong time, often where they're very chronic and have a lot of healthcare issues. They're going to get it at the wrong place, which is typically the emergency rooms, which is the most expensive place to get health care. Oh, by the way, it's not very expensive to them at all because, for the most part, they get it actually for free. And that's where, that's where I started to also realize that when we talk about entitlements, the real entitlement existed prior to Medicaid expansion because these folks go to the ER. They get a very expensive treatment, which the ERs have to provide for them. And then they continue to incur costs because often they're chronic. And some of those costs, in many cases, could have been avoided if they'd simply had access to preventative and other health care services. So um, we had a problem. It wasn't necessarily that people weren't getting the health care. They weren't getting preventative care, but they were getting it in these emergency rooms, and they were getting it for free, and the rest of us were getting cost shifted, and, and we were having to pay for it. So in realizing this, I really started to look into the system and and I'd hoped that there was a way to craft legislation where we could enact Medicaid expansion as an economic development program for businesses um, so that our workers could get preventative and other health care services so they're healthy and addicted, they could succeed in the workforce. And that simply benefited me as a business person. It benefited the workers and their families. Um, it seemed like something that was worthwhile to dig into and try to find a solution. But the, but the real problem in finding that solution was that the feds had passed a one-size-fits-all program, um, which doesn't work. It doesn't work the same in New York or California that it would in Montana. So our challenge was to find a way to craft a really good solution using a really crappy toolbox that we had gotten from the feds. <laughs> hey, what were um, – and I appreciate that as well. Again, uh, Representative Ed Buttry is with us, House District 21. It's north of Great Falls, Black Eagle area there. Um, also served in the Senate uh, beginning in 2011 – um, as uh, we talk about Medicaid expansion here, and we have a little bit of track record to look back upon. Uh, it, so look back upon that. The goals that you were you were trying to reach, um, did what were they, and were you successful? Yeah, there were ten goals. As I started crafting the bill in the 2013 timeframe, um, trying to come up with a solution, there were ten goals that I set initially, and I've carried those goals around with me for a lot of years. Um, the goals were to increase the availability of high-quality health care in Montana, to provide greater value for the tax dollars spent on Montana Medicaid, all the different Medicaid programs, to set people and workers up on the road to financial independence, including uh, being able to provide basic workforce and life skills to this population, uh, to teach this population healthy lifestyle and financial behaviors, to encourage Montanans to take greater responsibility for their personal health care and economic prosperity, uh, to treat mental illness and addictions while still treatable, 
to reduce cost shifting for unreimbursed health care costs to patients that have health insurance, because all that was being shifted to us, to provide a pathway out of poverty for the poor citizens and to bring the massive amount of Montana money that's been paid and was being paid into the federal ACA system back to Montana. And then finally, I wanted to ensure that we created triggers in the laws um, so that if things were to change at the federal level, such as funding changes or program changes, that um, it would require the legislature to intervene um, or the program would simply go away. And so we created this thing called the Montana Health and Economic Livelihood Partnership. Many folks know it as the HELP Act. It was Senate Bill 405, and that was in 2015 session. And we created a bill to meet those 10 goals and also to measure how we had done and uh, had a lot of good discussions, a lot of robust uh, testimony and arguments in the legislative session, but we did end up passing that in 2015. And I remember um, I remember the controversy surrounding that, but I also remember, uh, in my mind, you're going to have passion, you're going to have emotion, a lot of things, but um, I think uh, Montanans, and especially the legislature, had to really dig into it, had to look at these costs, had to look at um, where perhaps taxpayer money is well spent and well, where it's wasted um, in this system. I, I kind of want to ask that question, but um, as you go through those goals, along comes COVID. Uh, and, and that probably threw those off a little bit. Um, how, how can you assess the success of this and those goals through that lens? Well, COVID was tough because yeah. along with COVID came a federal mandate that um, we could not uh, reduce any of the folks that were on any of the Medicaid programs. Um, you know, and we built a robust, very innovative, complex system that really focused on what the income levels of a person were, what their assets were, you know, to make sure that we were providing service to the most needy population. And then to also measure, again, these income levels and other uh, levels specific to an individual in the program to make sure that they needed to remain on the program. Uh, when COVID came around uh, and the Fed said you could not disenroll anyone from Medicaid programs, um, it certainly made things tougher. We were providing a very necessary healthcare service to our population in Montana, but we were providing uh, services to more people than we were used to providing them for. Um, there was more federal money coming in. There was more state costs. But, you know, in, in looking to see if we were successful with a very small or an individual population, it became much harder during COVID. We have Representative Ed Buttry calling us from Great Falls. He represents District uh, 21 there, again, as I mentioned, north uh, of that area, including Black Eagle, uh, a longtime legislator as well, and, and has kind of uh, taken up the, maybe it's it's the mantle uh, on the GOP side uh, to examine Medicaid. And as uh, you talked, Ed, and again, I appreciate you being here, it is a philosophical discussion about what government should and should not pay for. And I want to get into, you know, what you find out as the state expanded Medicaid in 2015, as you noted in that session, you had an, another chance to reauthorize it in 2019. So talk about what you guys learned in that first run and how you maybe made it better. Sure. Well, you know, to go back to the initial discussion on Medicaid, it was frustrating for me. Um, we really had a big political divide in the legislature. And on the left, um, you had the Democrats that were saying, hey, look, the feds know what they're doing. Just implement the federal plan as is. Mm -hmm. And on the right, you had the Republican Party, my party, saying, hey, just make sure we block anything that has to do with the ACA. And, you know, as a guy that's always spent my life and my business career solving problems, I thought, well, this is crazy. We're doing nothing. 
Um, isn't there something that we can do to come up with a solution that would work? And of course, anytime you implement a solution, you want to measure, you want to find out how you're doing, and then you want to be able to come back and implement additional changes and make the program better and more efficient. And in 2019, because of the initial sunset on the bill, um, we had to address the program again, and so we were able to implement a few more reforms. Um, some of these had nothing to do with health care. Uh, for instance, in the 2015 law and in the subsequent 2019 MARIA Act, which is the Medicaid Reform and Integrity Act, um, we had implemented waste, fraud, and abuse systems uh, not only in DPHHS but also in the Department of Labor. And we had found uh, some pretty good successes, especially in Department of Labor, in uh, making sure that we had the right people utilizing the state funding. And so we, um, in 2019, provided for additional waste, fraud, and abuse systems um, in DPHHS and implemented uh, additional reforms in Department of Labor. Uh, we also uh, implemented new programs for ensuring the right people were on it. Um, we made more robust a system where we measure a person's income, where we checked for citizenship and residency requirements, which we had heard from our constituents was something that was of concern. Um, we removed the statutory appropriation in Medicaid expansion. So in 2015, the program was funded just as a matter of law and didn't require legislative uh, okay to fund every biennium, and we took that away because we wanted to make sure the legislature was looking at the program required by law every two years and making sure it was still good for Montana, at least from a budget perspective. So we implemented that where every two years legislature has to, in essence, approve or end the program. Um, we provided for some additional work requirements and other things that require waivers from the Fed. And then in 2019, we put another sunset on, which continued the program until 30 June 2025. And, and so this is where the program sits today. And because of that new sunset we put on, we're again out educating, collecting data, reporting on how the program's doing, because we know we've got to come back in the next legislative session and make another decision. And how is it doing? Um, I, I see a note here, $27 million in state budget savings uh, noted from this expansion. Uh, also, you, you say the federal government reimbursed Montana for $0.80 cents out of every dollar spent on Medicaid. I, I, I don't want to forget about the people we're helping, and I want to make, uh, make sure we talk about that as well, those numbers. But let's get into the expense of this and, and uh, where it makes sense. Sure, and you had said, you know, we want to talk about who it's affecting. Yeah. So. Um, for folks that don't know who Medicaid expansion affects, it, it impacts adults in Montana that are between the ages of 19 and 64. And prior to expansion, that was a gap area where people did not have an option uh, to be part of the Medicaid program. And for someone to be eligible, um, they've got to fit in the range of 0 to 138% of what's called the federal poverty level. So if we look at an individual in Montana um, that maximum income level to be eligible is about $19,000 of income per year. And then it goes up uh, depending on how many family members are dependent. Uh, so for a family of three, that number raises to about 33000 a year. Um, as we've had the program um, go on and mature through the years, we've had enrollment of anywhere from 60000 to around 120000 which was in the COVID time frame, again, when we couldn't disenroll anyone. And we're now going through a reauthorization process to make sure that the income levels meet and people actually qualify for the program. Um, and I, the state latest numbers I heard, they'll estimate there'll be about 75,000 lives impacted by Medicaid expansion. Um, you had brought up what the cost is, and it's certainly something we hear a lot about. Um, what does this cost 
Montana taxpayers. Well, if you look at the entire biennium, so that's every two years, and that's how we budget in Montana, the total program costs per biennium are about $2.15 billion, and that is state and federal money. And uh, if we want to just look at how much it's costing the state, how much of the state general fund, that's about $82 million. And uh, when I go around, travel the state, and talk to folks, a lot of the focus is on cost. This is costing Montana taxpayers $82 million. And to a lot of people, that's a little bit shocking. But I always have to remind people, and as a business guy, you don't just look at the costs. You have to look at the whole P&L, the whole profit and loss. In addition to cost, you have to look at revenue. So um, we've there's a number of studies out there um, which uh, look at what this is bringing back to the state. And so I'll go through a couple of these items. Um, and this, again, is looking at it from a state biennium budget issue. So um, in the program, there are a number of people that moved from traditional Medicaid to this expansion program. And these are things uh, such as women, pregnant women, where uh, pregnant low-income women are covered by Medicaid as a matter of federal law no matter what. And with the expansion of Medicaid, we were able to move some of those folks from traditional Medicaid to the expansion population. And the benefit there is that in in expansion, the feds cover 90% of the cost and the state pays 10%, whereas in traditional Medicaid, the feds cover 65% and the state pays 35%. Those parties that moved from traditional to Medicaid expansion actually saved the state around $30 million. These are current, these are last year dollars, um, saved the state $30 million. Um, we were able to move folks from uh, substance use disorder, mental illness, and inmate medical treatment programs that were prior paid for entirely with state dollars. We could move those people into the program, and that saved the state $14 million There's also something called the bed tax, which is money that the hospitals pay into the system, um, and that's part of Medicaid expansion. The hospital, the state administers those funds and that program for the feds, and they get an administrative uh, cost or payment from the feds to administrate the program, and that's about $15 million. And then the really important thing is when we implemented Medicaid expansion, we created a lot of jobs, not only in the healthcare services, but also in ancillary type business services. And so we created and have sustained over 7,500 jobs in Montana. And that's brought in about $475 million of personal taxable income per biennium to the state and $775 million in taxable economic activity to the state. So if you look at how much tax revenue per biennium that's bringing to the state, that's about $50 million. So as you add up all of those revenues, it comes to about $109 million per biennium. That's our revenue. You take the cost out of that, which was $82 million, and as you said uh, earlier, that means that this is a benefit to the state taxpayers of about $27 million per biennium. And that's important because if this program doesn't continue, that leaves a $27 million gap in our state budget And that's a gap that we would have to cover. We either have to cover that by cutting other programs or by, unfortunately, raising taxes. And so the big point here is that when you consider a program, you have to look at both the costs and the benefits. And when you do that with independent numbers brought up by a lot of folks that have studied what it has been in Montana, this has been a benefit for the taxpayers of Montana. And I think a lot of, and I appreciate that, Representative Ed Buttry again with us here, House District 21, as we talk about Medicaid expansion. It'll need to be reauthorized again. 
in this next session. Um, I think a lot of people are beginning to understand the, the cost savings uh, to the public when we look at better front-end care. Um, and, and I like how you noted some of those goals as well, mental health and, and behavioral and lifestyle things. I think a lot of people um, have to take their own health care into their own hands, so to speak, and, and will be better off for that. Um, so maybe address that, how this expansion program tries to encourage that. But what kind of services then are we paying for when it comes to Medicaid? Well, it's it's certainly um, health care services. But, you know, if you look back at the 2023 legislative session, there was a huge focus. And a lot of this came from the executive, from our governor, came from legislature. Uh, we know we have a critical need for behavioral health and substance abuse services. It is a real problem in Montana. And prior to Medicaid expansion, um, the total funding that the state was providing into behavioral health services was about $5 million. And since we've been able to implement Medicaid expansion and also the additional federal funding that comes in, we're now providing through this program over $70 million um, uh, for behavioral health and substance abuse services. And $70 million compared to $5 million is a big deal. That's one of the benefits. So people think it's all about traditional health care. It's not. It's about physical health. It's about mental health. It's about behavioral health. It's about addiction and substance abuse services. All of these things come with the program, um, and those are just more of the benefits that have been provided. We've also got to remember that um, Montana businesses, a large number, in fact, a large majority of Montana businesses have employees that are on this program. Uh, 89% of accommodation food-type businesses have workers on the program. 67% of retail businesses have workers on the program. And over 54% of construction businesses have workers in the program, just as a couple of examples. And when studies have been done to look at what the cost of providing health care to those employees if we didn't have expansion would be to those Montana businesses, these aren't state businesses, you know, these are private Montana businesses, um, it has saved those businesses anywhere between, it's a big gap, but anywhere between $350 million and $950 million. And that's a big deal. And again, as I said in the beginning, I got involved in this because I'm a business guy. And in looking at that, that's a huge, huge benefit to me. Um, we have also know that much of our state is rural. And um, we, you know, it's awful nice when you live in a less, populated area that you have access to healthcare services. And we do that in Montana through what's called critical access hospitals. Mm -hmm. And these hospitals have traditionally been in great financial distress. And at the point that we were looking at this program, there were many of those small community hospitals that were in real dire need and maybe some of them that were looking to close their doors because they just were not financially viable. Uh, since, since we've implemented the program and brought that additional funding to those hospitals, we've had zero closures in Montana and that's something that not a lot of states can brag about. So um, when you look at the benefits to the state budget, you look at the benefits to the state, you look at benefits to businesses, to small communities, to people that now have access to this uh, mental, physical, behavioral health programs, it is a pretty good deal, especially when you consider that it is a profit center for the state in the amount of $27 million dollars. Um, in looking at all the numbers totaled and all the benefits, state and private, um, for every dollar that we've put into the program, it's returned about $25 into the state. 
that seems to be a pretty good deal. Representative Ed Buttry is a Republican out of the Great Falls area, District 21. That's north of Great Falls and has been uh, serving in the legislature for a number of years. And um, as a businessman, had related his interest and then getting you know more and more involved in this, understanding the cost savings behind it, but also how it can help our, our patients, our mental health patients in particular, um, encouraging lifestyle changes. I very much appreciate, um, you know, taking that holistic sort of approach when we, we look at health care reform, uh, Representative. I want to get back on, as you noted, going into the break here, some of those things um, that uh, that you did see improvement on. But the there's misconceptions out there about that. Um, and I also know that uh, you noted our critical access. We're really pretty much frontier medicine in Montana. Uh, the expansion was very, very important for our rural hospitals. And I think that's what really kind of got it over over the hump, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. That was a real concern um, when I started in the legislature was the financial viability of our rural hospitals. Um, you know, if you live in, in Conrad or Ekalaka or, you know, Glendive or somewhere that has less population and you have health care needs, the last thing you want to do, especially in the wintertime, is to have to get in your car and drive 200 miles, 300 miles to get to a healthcare facility. Um, that's just not realistic. It puts people in further peril and risk. And, you know, you, and especially as we're looking to grow businesses, people that live in rural Montana want to have successful businesses and to have employees and to really be successful. Healthcare is a big part of the equation. So we needed to make sure that we were coming up with a system that would protect those rural hospitals. All right. What's what's the evaluation then uh, when when this comes up? What do people need to know uh, about about where we're at with it and and where where the plan is going and how well it meets that needs? I know it's a kind of a, a broad question, but you know, d- does this program in Montana find the balance between um, you know government funding and yet not government dependence? Yeah, that's the key. Is how do we take like I said in the beginning a, a really crappy one-size-fits-all toolbox from the feds and implement a program that is affordable um, for the state taxpayers, uh, provides the benefit that our citizens need and our businesses need. Um, How do we measure that? How do we make sure that it's working? And then how do we adapt um, and reform the program to make sure we're getting the best bang for the buck? And, And so when we initially passed the program, we had an oversight committee that would collect this data and would provide it in a public forum for people to discuss. Um, as the program continued, we found that organizations like the BBER, the uh, Bureau of Business and Economic Research, and other entities that weren't involved with the legislature were actually collecting data on the program and on the users of the program, and uh, were getting really good data. So we decided at that point we didn't need the Oversight Committee anymore, but that we were going to utilize these third-party evaluators to figure out how the program is doing, what it costs and benefits for the state and to the users. And we monitor that pretty closely. Um, And then when we come back in session, if there's issues, if there's things we need to address, or if there's other innovation, at that point, we can implement it. And but but of course, a lot of what we have to do in speaking with the legislator and individual legislators is to make sure that we are dealing with facts, um, real data versus myths, and ideology. And that's tough when you're talking about government involvement in healthcare mm-hmm. to really kind of sift out all the stuff that that has no basis in fact and to really look at real numbers is tough. And there's a lot of things that as I travel around and talk to people um, that I hear and some of them just simply aren't true. So, uh, you know, get people educated. 
what are the real facts, what's the real data, and then make a real informed decision. Um, I'm curious about, and I got Skip standing by. Skip, stand by real quick. What are like, uh, what's the biggest one out there that, that people don't understand about this? What's the biggest myth? Well, there's really seven myths. I think the largest one um, is that Medicaid expansion, um, once a person is on Medicaid expansion, they'll never leave the program. And that was a concern of ours. Mm-hmm. We really crafted the program to try to get people a hand up, um, you know, to get them healthy, to get them into jobs so that either their employer could provide the coverage or they would get to an income level where they could go on to the exchange or go on to private, private health care insurance. And so we really watched that to find out how long people were on the program. Now, of course, as you said before, COVID put a little bit of a wrench in this because we couldn't disenroll anyone. Uh, but in non-COVID times, what we found is that the average um, length that a person in Montana would remain on Medicaid expansion is actually less than 24 months. So we have a lot of people churning through the system. They're getting on the system. They're getting the health care treatment that they need. They're getting into jobs, and then they're leaving the program. And, in fact, prior to COVID, when we saw the economy in Montana in those years prior uh, really take off and we saw a huge economic improvement, we saw a dramatic reduction. I think it was about 15% reduction in the users that were on the program. And that's how we designed it. Times are tough. You're going to have more users. Times are good. The economic prosperity is better. People don't need the program. They're going to drop off. And, uh, you know, you always plan something thinking it's going to work great. And then usually you find out, well, you know, it was okay. We got to do some more things. We were really lucky in this program that in a lot of ways it worked actually the way that we designed it. And that was to be a lifeline for folks. But as they got their feet underneath them, they didn't need it anymore. Yeah, that's the, the good definition of a, of a safety net is, is that less than 24 months or it's something that they're temporarily there for. That, um, Skip has been so patient listening in Hamilton. I appreciate that, Skip. But you're on the air now with Representative Ed Buttry here on Voices. Hey, and thank you, Tom. I'm like feeling good about all the things I've been hearing, and I think that when this does come up for its, its sunset is in 25, but it, when it comes up to be reconsidered, I think that, that Ed Buttrey and yourself should just do the dog and pony show for both houses of the legislature, and it'll pass, and then we can get on with other business, because you cover all the bases, and, and uh, you, you don't leave any stones unturned. I, I appreciate the way you unfolded it all. Would you please explain, sir, this one thing, and that is what is the work requirement that, and maybe you remember this, if I'm correct, that really swayed a few legislators to finally say we have to have this program. Skip. Maybe you'll remember that. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate yeah, I appreciate that question too, Ed, and, and I was going to follow that up with, when, when you, along with that answer, how many people are not leaving the program too? Well, let me just address Skip's question. That's a great question. Um, In 2019, one of the reforms, it's sort of a good news, bad news story. Um, In 2019, one of the reforms that we put in was to require the state to apply for a waiver uh, from the feds um, to require work requirements for the population. And as Skip said, the 80 80 hours per month work requirement, and there's some exceptions Mm -hmm. because some people simply can't work that are on the program. Um, under the Biden administration, unfortunately, that waiver was not approved. It is still in our law. Um, it's one of those triggers that I talk about that says that with approval of the waiver, Montana is then allowed to, to require those work hours and documentation from enrollees in the program. Um, has not been implemented because the waiver was not approved. 
Uh, certainly in this next election, if we get a Republican administration in the White House, um, that changes the rules at CMS. Um, who's the ones that oversee the program at the federal level. And, and because it's still in Montana law at that point, we could implement it. Understood. I would want to tell yeah. you, though, that one of the other misconceptions that I hear um, was that people on this program don't work. And in Montana, that's absolutely untrue. Um, as we've measured this population, we found that 76% of Montanans uh, on Medicaid expansion are indeed working, and an additional 6% are attending school. So that gets you to 82%. And as we look at the remaining 18% of folks that are on the program, uh, the majority of that 18% that's remaining are either caretaking, they're staying home and caretaking for family members, or they're disabled and simply unable to work. So um, it is a very hard-working population. Um, unfortunately, they're not getting the hours and the wages that would uh, take them off the program and into into some other health care provider program. Again, Representative Ed Buttry here, House District 21. I really appreciate you, you coming on, Ed. Um, the myth list, um, I think we only got a, a partial understanding of that list. What else is on that myth list? Sure, thanks. Uh, I'll go through them pretty quickly. Well, uh, these are just things I hear as I talk to people about the program that I want to make sure that we set the record straight. Uh, one of the things I commonly hear that is that we, we've, since we've been in Medicaid expansion, there's no way to get out. Um, certainly the bill as we've initially crafted it and is in law today does require that if the feds change the law or change the funding formula that the program could not exist without the legislature coming in and deciding whether to re- continue the program or not. We often hear that it's just another entitlement program that gives health care away for free. And I want to reiterate, as I said in the beginning, that the real entitlement existed prior to the program being enacted because those folks that are on the program were getting health care in the emergency rooms and they were getting it for free. And that cost was being shifted to the rest of us. We hear that other states survive without Medicaid expansion using programs like block grants. And um, shouldn't we look at something like that? And, you know, we have looked at those programs. They're population-based. And so when you look at the low population and large size of Montana, if we were to go to one of those programs, similar to what Florida and other states have, um, using those formulas, we would bring about $90 million, sorry, about $12 million a year for health care into the state. And when you compare that to the over $900 million that's coming in per year right now, that doesn't make sense. I hear that Medicaid expansion is just a moneymaker for hospitals, and this is something a lot of folks don't necessarily understand. When the ACA was created, it's required to be budget neutral um, at the federal level, and one of the ways that they've uh, made it as designed to be budget neutral is they cut rates and took other uh, benefits from hospitals that equated about $400 billion a year uh, hit to hospitals. Um, and so they've paid a significant amount of money into the system. And through our Montana Medicaid program, we've brought uh, money back to the hospitals, especially in our rural areas, to help pay for the cost of that health care. And then finally, uh, we hear that Montanans as a whole don't support Medicaid expansion. And um, the chamber did a study uh, in late 2023 that shows that over 84% of Montanans do support the program. We know the state chamber has endorsed it. Many large business groups and area chambers have endorsed continuation of the program. So our business leaders are saying, hey, this is good for Montana. We should continue it. Um, ultimately, you know, when we look at the facts and the data, um, it's good for the state budget. It's good for Montana businesses. It's provided a lifeline for our rural hospitals. 
Um, it's good for the people of Montana, especially when you look at physical, mental health services, drug addiction services. Uh, we've just got to make sure that we take the ideology out of it. We look at the real data. And quite honestly, as a, as a small business guy, as a legislator, um, if as long as we make informed decisions, I can live with whatever we come up with, whether yeah. the answer is yes or no to continue the program. But in reality, there are a lot of people in Montana that can't live with a bad decision. Um, for many of them, it's life and death. For many businesses, it can be life and death, and it's something that we need to consider. Thanks again for joining us for the podcast. Please share, subscribe, and let us know what you think. Email me at tom at voicesofmontana.com. And don't forget, we're on weekdays on your hometown radio stations all across Montana. We hope to hear from you there, too.